invite you to open to our scripture passage today. We're looking at the book of Exodus, um, starting chapter 6, verse 13 through 7, 7. So Exodus 6, 13 through 7, uh, 7. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yakin, Zohar, Shaul, son of a Canaanite woman, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the son of Levi, according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mahli and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jacobed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael and Elzaphon and Sithri. Aaron married Elsheba, Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, Ebiasaph, and these were the Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Pharaoh, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with a mighty act of judgment, I will bring out my division, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded him. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us today. Uh, even when we read these passages that just remind us how far we are away from these people in this culture, Father, your voice is no further away um, than it was to them. And we pray that you would speak, Father, because what we need in our hearts is your creative word to make us new, to convict us of our sins, and to heal us as only you can, be heal you can heal us. And so, Father, we pray, speak life into us, Father. Make us into Christ's image through the power of your word. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 
Well, at the end of The Wizard of Oz, uh, which you probably all remember this scene, you have Dorothy and her three companions and then her little dog Toto. And they've come before the great and powerful Oz, uh, which kind of looks like a cheap hologram or something, you know, back in the 30s or whenever they made that movie. And, and they brought with them the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. Right? And Oz had made them this deal. If you vanquish the witch, then I will grant your wishes. And so they have vanquished her and they come back in order to get their wishes granted. But the wizard says, well, actually come back tomorrow. And so Dorothy objects. She says, no, if you were really all great and powerful, you'd keep your promises. Right? And as this conversation is going back and forth, her little lapdog Toto runs over to the corner to like a green shower curtain looking thing, grabs it and pulls it back. And there behind the curtain is this hunched old man. And I just kind of watched this clip on YouTube uh, to refresh my memory. And, and he looks like an awkward DJ as he's like spinning dials and discs in order to control the wizard. And suddenly he realizes, He's been exposed, and so he pulls in the microphone, and you know, one of the most well-known uh, lines for that movie is, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And, and, and the point is, things aren't always what they seem. Right? You, you see this great and powerful Oz, but sometimes you need to pull back the curtain to realize the scary wizard is actually just a scared old man. And, and Exodus, similarly, is a book about pulling back the curtain. You see, Egypt was one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. It was as good as life gets. But God pulls back the curtain to show Israel it's not what it looks like. We're working through the book of Exodus in this series that we've named three gifts. We're looking at the three gifts in Exodus. And the first gift that we're looking at in the first section is the gift of redemption. And this passage is something of a break in the narrative, right? So we've been kind of following the story thus far. And what we have here is something kind of like an interlude or a pause where we get all these names and then we get a summary of what the whole book of Exodus is about, kind of like a recap. And, and this sermon's actually going to be a bit different than many of my sermons because what I thought would be helpful is to kind of use some of the, the main themes that are presented here to take a step back to look at some of the bigger picture of what is going on in Exodus before we jump into the details of the story again, right? So this is going to help us understand, you know, what is the main narrative and themes in this part of the book. And what I want you to remember is that God, God's Word, pulls back the curtain of this world. God's word pulls back the curtain of this world to show us what is really true. And so we're going to look at this uh, three ways. First, looking at the genealogy, and then the glory of Egypt, and then third, the hollowness of Egypt. So first, the genealogy. Our passage starts with this genealogy, which doesn't mean as much to us as it did to the original audience, right? We, we read it, I read it, and just hope, man, I hope I don't, you know, butcher these names too bad. You guys read it and say, couldn't read those names and I have no idea what they mean, but, but just remember, a genealogy is interested, interesting when it's connected to you, right? Just as you care about your genealogy, right? Like, who am I related to? What famous people do I have as ancestors? You know, how many degrees am I from Kevin Bacon, right? Like, you want to know all these things, even though someone else could care less about your genealogy. 
And the genealogy here is interesting to the people that first heard this because these were their ancestors, right? This was the story of where they came from. It starts with the sons of Jacob who settled in Egypt and then became the tribes of Israel. But what we see is this genealogy doesn't go through every tribe, but actually kind of makes a pit stop when he gets to Levi and, and is skewed towards telling us about Levi's descendants more than just giving us every single of the, one of the 12 tribes. So, for instance, if you look in verse 16, it names the sons of Levi, but then instead of going to the next tribe and, and listing his sons like it did previously, it stops and goes a level down to tell us the next generation after Levi's sons. So it tells us of Amram, who is a descendant of Levi and the father of Moses and Aaron. And then in verse 23, it's interesting because we might think, okay, now we're going to learn more about Moses' family tree. But actually, Moses is just mentioned without any mention of his wife or the kids that he has. And actually skips over and focuses on uh, Moses' brother, Aaron, right? who's, who's kind of his compatriot here in Exodus, but plays a, a kind of back role. And then it dives in in verse 25 to tell us some of Aaron's descendants, all the way down to Eleazar, son of Aaron, who married and had a son named Phinehas. Now, Phineas is someone who will show up later on in the Bible. So, for instance, in Ex or, sorry, Judges 20, 27 through 28, we read, And the Israelites inquired of the Lord with Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, who was serving in the temple. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, right, Judges takes place uh, after Israel has made it out of Egypt, through the wilderness, they've settled in the promised land and are starting to build a life for them, right? It is well over a hundred years after the events of the book of Exodus. It's, it's likely that Phineas, who's mentioned here, wasn't even born at the time when these events took place, right? Which is kind of interesting that Moses is giving us a genealogy for people that may not have actually been born when this stuff happened. And that should kind of raise a little, you know, light bulb in our head. Well, what is Moses getting at here then? So then if you notice, in verse 26, we get out of the genealogy, and it says, It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said. Then you go to verse 27. They were the ones who spoke to the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. Right? So it's, it's really focusing on, hey, there might be a bunch of guys named Moses and Aaron. It was these ones with these ancestors who are the ones who we're talking about in this book called Exodus. Right? It's, it's establishing their credibility. Right? But for who? Now, one thing that is helpful to remember whenever we interpret the Bible is that there's the events that took place, right? So these actual events of the Exodus, but there's always some time between when those events took place and when they were recorded down, right? And in the Old, in the Old Testament, sometimes that can be a good chunk of time, right? So Moses, a number of years after these things have been written, is writing them in the book of Exodus, and he's writing them not kind of as like, you know, breaking news. You know, we just got reports that this happened in South Carolina or whatever, right? Here's kind of play by play, but actually written more uh, removed by time and writing to tell a particular audience, look, this is the story of your ancestors, and I'm telling you this in order to teach you something, right? Moses is writing to teach the next generation something. So when we interpret the Bible, we've got to remember there's what happened, and then there's the recording of it, which is always written for a particular audience, and then there's us reading that recording of it, right? So we're in some ways two steps removed from what originally happened, and that can help 
help us understand in our interpretation. So Moses is writing to a particular audience. Well, who's his audience? We get a clue when we realize Moses goes into great detail for Aaron's descendants, not his. It seems that Moses is writing to establish not just Aaron, the first priest's credibility, but his descendants, namely Phineas, who later would serve as a priest for a generation after Moses. And so Moses was the greatest prophet Israel ever had, but interestingly, after that, the focus actually shifts to Aaron's descendants, who would play a greater role in the generations afterwards as the priests of Israel. So what we have here is something like a two-minute recap, you know, before your favorite TV episode, right, where it says, like, you know, previously on whatever, right, and here's what's happened, here's what's going on. Moses is telling this kind of abbreviated version of the story to teach his audience something. And what is that? Well, it's that things aren't always what they look like. You need to remember to look behind the curtain, right? That, that the, the nations, these other people that seem so powerful, that are so scary to you, you need to remember who God is. And God's word pulls back the curtain to show you what is really going on. Egypt isn't what it looks like. So our second point, the glory of Egypt. Verse 28 gives us this basic plot of Exodus, right? God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. Like, that's what this whole book is all about. Basically, it sounds so simple, right? Just repeat after me, Moses. Let my people go. That's all you got to do, Moses. Nothing else, right? Just repeat what I say. And God says, I'm going to do the heavy lifting, right? I'm going to be the one that brings Israel out. I'm going to take care of you guys. Moses, all you got to do is speak these words. But what does Moses do? But he's not looking at it from God's perspective. He's looking at it from a human perspective. And he looks from a human perspective at Egypt and Pharaoh and he says, well, they're kind of scary to talk to. Right? He sees the great and powerful Oz, or Pharaoh, not what's really behind the curtain. And so he says, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And if you remember several weeks back, we, we asked, well, we don't know exactly what these faltering lips are, right? It, it could be Moses has some speech impediment. It could be that his Egyptian has gotten rusty from so many years away. It could be, like most of us, he just really doesn't like public speaking. And the idea of standing before the king, Pharaoh, and his whole court, right, is really intimidating, and he just, you know, gets nervous thinking about it. And so Moses asks, why in the world would Pharaoh listen to me? And remember... Two weeks ago, Moses had his first encounter with Pharaoh. And that's exactly what happened, right? Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh doesn't say, okay, let me think about it, right? No, it's more like he flips through his Rolodex and say, let me see, Yahweh, God of Israelites. Nope, don't know that God, never heard of him, not on my radar, I don't need to listen to him, right? He says you're God, well, I'm going to show the Israelites who their real God is. Let's make him work even harder. And Moses is like, he didn't listen to me the first time, why is he going to listen to me the second time? Now, when we read Exodus we get the sense Egypt is a horrible place to live, right? Especially if you're a Hebrew. But, but it's interesting, actually, if you look at all of the Bible, it's not that simple. We, we sometimes can be left scratching our heads, wait, is Egypt a good place to live or a bad place to live? We see it not long after the Israelites get out of Egypt, and it doesn't take too long before they stop looking towards the promised land and start looking back to life in Egypt. So in Exodus 13, 16.3, the Israelites said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around eating pots of meat and all, ate all the food we wanted. Like, 
I love that phrase, pot of meat. Like, I don't even know what that is. Like, why don't we have those today, right? It's like stew without carrots and potatoes, right? Just the meat, fork tender meat simmered for hours, right? In, in spices and, and seasoning. And the thing is, like, in much of the rest of the world today, back then even more, meat was a luxury, Right? People didn't eat meat regularly. It's where we get that idea of the Sunday roast, where you know, not that long ago, many British people wouldn't get meat every day, but on Sundays they would splurge and have a roast together. The one day they got to eat meat. And later in, in Numbers 11, 4-5, the Israelites say, If only we had meat to eat! We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost! You think like, well, you guys were slaves. You kind of were working hard. Like, didn't that count for something, right? They don't say that. They just say, oh, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Numbers 1250 or 2050. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. But if you just look at Egypt from that perspective, like, man, Egypt is the promised land, right? Like, all-you-can-eat buffet of meat and pomegranates and figs. And remember how we just sat around with pots of meat, seasoned with leeks and onions and, and vegetables, and then we stuffed ourselves after that with pomegranates and figs. Man, I miss Egypt. Now, we've been reading the story at the beginning, you're like, what Egypt are they talking about, right? Like, did they, was the food so good, it, they had a food coma and forgot all the, you know, the slavery and the murder and all that stuff? Right? From one perspective, Egypt sounds like hell on earth, which is what we've seen at the beginning of Exodus, but then if you look through the rest of the Bible, you can read about Egypt and it sounds like the promised land. Like, so which is it? If you look at ancient sources or from archaeology, we see Egypt was this prosperous civilization. It was wealthy. They had a reliable source of water, which we don't understand how crucial that was for ancient people, right? We just get, we're spoiled with turning on our faucet and we get drinking water. But like, you know, go backpacking in August up in the mountains and don't check the map to see if it's a seasonal stream or a stream that runs year round and you'll discover how important access to water is. They, had, um, they were a great place to get food during famine because of the Nile River, which provided a steady supply of water which allowed them to produce crops, which is why the Israelites ended up in Egypt in the first place. When Rome controlled portions of Egypt, they loved Egypt. They had a firm grasp on Egypt because it was like the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Egypt had magnificent buildings that still stand today. And it was a wealthy place, right? Even the slaves ate meat. I mean, think about that for a second, right? Like, kind of, most of you know, we just got a dog over uh, Christmas. And so, we, you know, I'm paying attention to, like, pet stuff, right? And at least in Harmon's, when you go down the pet aisle, they have, like, a cooler full of gourmet dog food, right? With, like, grass-fed beef with no preservatives. It's, like, probably better meat than what you get at McDonald's, right? And you can buy it for your dog. And then you go to the next little area, and it's the dog cookies that are so decorated that you want to try one, right? They're better than, like, the human cookies. And you know you live in a wealthy society when our dogs eat better than most of the rest of the world's population, right? We're blessed in that way. We have a lot. And that was Egypt. Even the slaves get pots of meat. Even the slaves eat all they want. Egypt is where you wanted to live. And to bring it in personally, like, what's, what's your dream home? What's your dream place where you want to live, right? Right? 50 acres, wooded with a stream, and a, you can't see or hear any of your neighbors. 
You know, maybe it's a place where you can walk to the beach every morning. Or maybe it's just a, a house with a four-car garage you can back your trailer in and put your boat next to it. Like, that's Egypt, right? That's the zip code. Egypt was the zip code with the most expensive property. It looked like the promised land. Egypt is that place where one day you hope, man, I, I would love to be able to buy a home there. Right? What is your Egypt? Where is it that you long? Man, I want to get there. What does your heart long for? And Pharaoh is king of all of that. Right? He was the most powerful man on earth. He was considered a god. And so with that background now, it's completely reasonable that Moses would ask, why in the world would Pharaoh listen to me? when he's got everything. And then this brings us to our third point, the hollowness of Egypt. Right, the world looked at Egypt back in that day and, and it thought, this is where you want to be. But Exodus and Moses tells us a different story. It pulls back the curtain to show the reality of something that looked so glamorous on the outside that on the inside it was rotting. And we see this in a number of ways in the text and, and throughout Scripture. For instance, Moses almost always describes travel to Egypt as going down to Egypt. It's the same word that's often translated as a descend, descending down, descending down from heaven, descending into the underworld. Egypt was not described as an ascent, right? Moving up, as we would think when someone moves into a nicer neighborhood, oh, you're moving up in the world, right? But Egypt in the Bible is always described as a descent, and what are you descending into? A land of death, where babies are slaughtered. A land of wailing out and crying out. A land of suffering. Right? Moses is describing Egypt and saying, man, you might think it looks so good and glamorous on the outside, but it is a living hell. And Pharaoh is its king. Right? Pharaoh is like Satan personified. But most people don't see that. No, Egypt's the promised land. And this is why God's people always had that temptation to go back to Egypt. Take Isaiah, which was written many centuries after that. They still longed for Egypt. God says in Isaiah 30, For without consulting me, you have gone down to Egypt for help. You have put your trust in Pharaoh's protection. You have tried to hide in his shade. Or Isaiah 31, What sorrow awaits those who look to Egypt for help, trusting in their horses, chariots, and charioteers, and depending on the strength of human armies, instead of looking to the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. For these Egyptians are mere humans, not God. Their horses are puny flesh, not mighty spirits. There's this constant battle for how do we see Egypt, right? Is it heaven or is it hell? From a merely human perspective, it looks great. People want to go there, and God is continually having to pull back the curtain to remind them, say, Egypt is not what it looks like. It's not what you think it is. And that's what God is doing in verses 1 to 6 of our passage, where he starts off with saying, see, right? It's like he's pulling back the curtain and saying, look at what's behind the curtain. It's not the great and powerful Pharaoh, but this old man who's hiding. It's what God is getting at when he says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was seen as God by the people there. And here God says, you know what is real? I'm going to make you like God to the one who everyone thinks is God. I'm going to use little stammering Moses to show Pharaoh's true size, to put him in his place, to show how small he is compared to me. And so God says, though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. 
See, what is going on beneath the surface in the book of Exodus, it's really this competition of who will the Israelites serve? Right? Who will be their master? Who will be their God? Right now, Pharaoh is claiming, I'm God of these people, right? I decide what they do. I decide how hard they work. I decide how they make bricks. I decide their working hours. I decide where they live. That's God, right? Where you spend your work towards, that is you know, what is functionally God in your life. And Yahweh comes in and says, no, you're not their God. I am. Hey, and Pharaoh doesn't say, okay, no. He said, all right, well, let's, let's see. You know, I'm ready to back up my words. We'll have a fight about it. That's why there's this request that keeps popping up in the book of Exodus to say, let's us go out to the wilderness so we can worship. That's why that is such a big thing. And Pharaoh, it seems like a reasonable request. Okay, yeah, you guys go out for a couple day journey to worship, come back. What harm is there in that? But why won't Pharaoh allow that? Because it's an issue of the heart. Pharaoh is a jealous God. And he wants the Israelites worshiping him 24-7 through all the bricks they make. That is their act of worship to Pharaoh. And work is worship. And in the end, there's only two people that you can serve. God or Pharaoh. Or Satan, we could say. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament that, that is used for serve is also a word that is often translated as worship. It's, they're so intimately tied. And so the only way that Israel is going to be freed from having Pharaoh as their functional God is verse 4. I, God, will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. You see, how is it that someone is freed from serving one God to another? How is someone freed from serving Satan? It's only through the power of God. Right? He breaks in. He does the redeeming. He pulls them out. Why? So that they may be free to worship the one they were made for. The true God, instead of all these false gods that demand their worship and it sucks the life out of them. Egypt is a story. Sorry, Exodus is a story about a place that from the outside looks great. You want to build your house here. It's the good life. But there's a dark underbelly. You know what, yeah, you can live there and get all the steak and fish you want. Man, you can stuff your mouth with pomegranates and figs and there'll be so much left over. But there's just one little catch. You gotta serve Pharaoh. Will you do it? And that is the temptation that would never get out of the Israelites' system. I think it would get out of Egypt, but Egypt never got out of them. And it's the same with us. They would look back, man, this is hard out here. Like this, I don't know, God, is God really a good God? Because it's hot in the desert. Remember how much better it was back there? Yeah, maybe it wasn't that bad serving Pharaoh. Because man, we've got to eat really well. See, the New Testament invites us to see your life, your journey in light of the Exodus story. Right? Where is your heart set? Is it towards Egypt and the comfort that it offers? Or is it towards a better land that often involves walking through a desert first? But you trust that it's worth it. And see, just as in Exodus, there's a sense spiritually, we are all born in Egypt. We're all born into sin. And God, what he does is he offers to break into your life to save you from that slavery 
Slavery to sin, slavery to your addictions, slavery to this world, slavery to the rat race, from living for things that never satisfy, from work that is never enough, from you know, money that is never quite enough. And he does it how? By breaking in through the mighty act of judgment that took place on the cross. Right? And there's all kinds of amazing parallels between the story of Exodus and Jesus' life. Right? Where you know, on the cross, what happened before Jesus died? It turned dark. And then the firstborn son of God died. And as we're going to start reading through the plagues here in the next few weeks, what do we see? There's darkness over the land, and then there's the plague of the firstborn. Right? God redeems his people through Jesus. And then what he offers to do is carry you not through the Red Sea, but through the waters of baptism, and then to lead you through the wilderness to the promised land. And see, the question is, what are you living for? The ease of Egypt? Man, because it feels a lot easier sometimes with those pots of meat and spices and just a little bit of compromise. See, don't you see that your work is worship? Your life is worship. How you spend your time, what you do, it's all worship in a sense. And so who or what are you worshiping? Hey, well, how do you know what you're worshiping? Look at where are you storing up your treasures? Right, are all your treasures stuck in the, you know, the stockhouses of Egypt and you're just pouring more in there, fill up those silos, fill up those accounts? Right, what are you living for? Because where you stored your treasure, that's where your heart is. You're living for Egypt, more money, accolades, success, praise, a perfect looking family. A bigger home, more stuff, ability to travel the world, you know, 50 acres away from everybody else. Like, none of that stuff is, is bad, and yet, so often, that shows that that is our God. Because we long for it, and we adjust our schedules and our lives in order to get that, right? Which is, what is that? That's worshiping it. And you can have it. That's the offer of the world, with just one little compromise, though. You've got to serve Satan. You could be decorating you know, those huge mansions that live at the base of the mountains over here, right, with 10, 20, 30,000 square feet and say, man, look at all these things. But guess what? No matter how many square feet you have, it's still a slave's quarters. Because even though he might give you great perks, you're doing it all for Pharaoh. See, service to evil, it looks nothing like what Hollywood wants us to think it looks like, right? It's not like a bunch of crazy people in a circle, you know, sacrificing rats and drinking the blood or just something totally ridiculous. Right? Why would anyone do that, right? No. Evil service to Pharaoh, to evil, looks so often like a nice, comfortable life with good benefits and just a little bit of compromise in your heart. Are you doing this for God or for someone else? And how do you know which one you're doing? Well, you've got to examine your heart, which is so hard to do. And you, How is it that you make decisions in your life? Now, do you ask, will this allow me to serve God more? Will this be honoring to Him? Will His name be glorified through it? Or is God just kind of the side benefit of this thing that I'm really seeking, right? Oh, if I do this, think of what I could do for God. Hey, and this doesn't mean that everyone's supposed to quit your job and, and go into ministry, right? No, actually, ministry is just as bad sometimes, right? Ministry is a great way to hide a selfish heart, but do it behind God so it looks okay and no one's going to call you out on it. Is your work, whatever that work might be, right? Homeschooling your kids, being a mom, 
serving in, a, in the marketplace, right? this job or that job, being a grandma or grandpa, whatever that is, is that leading you to worship? Are you doing it out of joy for God? Or is it squeezing him out? No matter how much you may say, oh no, I really am doing this for God. But what's your goal? Right? Does your life look something like Egypt? Everything looks great on the outside, but the inside tells a different story. Right? You can have the best resume, but your home life's a mess. You can have everything you wanted, but it's still never enough. And the reason is that you don't need just more of Egypt. It's that you need to realize Egypt will never satisfy. And to repent and to turn and realize God is the one you need. Isaiah 30, starting in verse 15, tells us, here's the way forward. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will go to Egypt for our help. They will give us swift horses for riding into battle. But the only swiftness you're going to see is the swiftness of your enemies chasing you. You will be left like a lonely flagpole on a hill or a tattered banner on a distant mountaintop. What does a life seeking the luxuries and ease of Egypt end with? Exodus 14.27. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. And then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh, all of the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea. Not a single one survived. That's where Egypt ends. And no one thinks it, right? No, that's not going to happen to us. You see, everything that you might be working so hard to attain will one day be rotting at the bottom of the Red Sea. And will you be drugged down with it because you're holding on to those things so tightly you won't let them go? And it'll pull you down right to the bottom. And that's how Pharaoh meets his end. Right? He's the guy, oh, I've got it all. Nothing can touch me, right? And so he meets the true God and he can't stand that idea that he's not God, right? That Pharaoh's not God, that he's not the one to be served. And he refuses to bow his knee to the true God. And so what does he do? He rides his chariot straight to his death. He would rather die than serve God. God's word pulls back the curtain to show it's truly true, to show how so often the equations and the glasses of this world you know, aren't in focus. Don't tell what's true. And we see this so clearly in Luke chapter 4. Satan comes to Jesus and says, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Doesn't that sound familiar? He said, I'll give you the glory of Egypt. Just a little compromise. Right? Serving Satan, it often looks so innocent. Because it's what Jesus was there to get. Oh, wow, I'll take the shortcut. I don't have to go around the cross. I'll take it, Satan. And yeah, no one needs to know about that. It's the heart that makes the difference. The heart is most important. So what happens? Jesus replies, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You know, Satan offered glory without suffering, accolades without pain. And Jesus said, no, my way is the cross. Why? 
Because he saw behind the curtain that the rest of the world looks at the cross and says, dead end, game over. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand what it is. He saw behind the curtain. Hebrews 12, 2. Because of the joy awaiting Christ, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And so what should you do? Is your life going to take the shape of the cross? Which, man, it can be rough. And it pulls at the various deepest parts of your heart, but it leads to glory. Or you take the easy road of Egypt, which in the end ends up at the bottom of the sea. Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge, huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The life of faith is knowing what's behind the curtain, seeing the big picture, seeing what lasts and what doesn't, seeing what is truly worth your life and what will end up at the bottom of the sea. So what is it that you're living for? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see our, our lives in light of the Exodus in this story, Father, we're so easily deceived. The, the whole world is kind of like this giant advertisement trying to get us to buy into what it has to offer. And not like every, every, every advertisement, it never lives up to its promises. It ends in darkness. But Father, we always choose Egypt. We can't stop choosing it unless Jesus, who is the one who actually chose what was right, breaks into our life and into our heart and reorders us to actually love what is true and right and pure and lasting. And so we ask Jesus, would you do that in our hearts? Amen.